happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 272 on October 12, 2022. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful University of Montana campus right here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. Wes Fryer, reporting from the East Coast. How are you, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am well, and I am excited, although hopefully not too echoey, to be joining you from my new setup here in Matthews, North Carolina, where I am a media literacy and robotics middle school teacher at Providence Day School. Uh, we've been <laughs> in transition for literally months, and I'm, I'm happy to report that after not publishing seven shows in a row... <laughs> we had a fall break, and on Monday, I got six of them published, and the last one yesterday, so we are all up to date with our published shows, and uh, I'm, I'm at my desk. I will talk in my Geek of the Week about how it is that I'm magically looking at two connected screens on a 2012 iMac. How could that possibly be? Um, and I'm also using uh, this webcam app to use my iPhone 14 as my camera, so... Hopefully, all those those pieces come together. So how is Big Sky Country, and are you all in the midst of fall? Is the, uh, are the, is the smoke in the sky? What's the, what's the situation? That's a great question. Uh, October would usually bring, you know, fall weather, and it's fall-like here in that our trees are turning beautiful colors. Uh, Montana is really, truly fabulous in the fall. But our temperatures have been uh, pretty warm. I think we got up to maybe 72, 73 today, and that's actually the forecast for the next week or so, uh, which is really exciting. That's a nice temperature for this time of year. Um, and at certain point, we'll want, you know, winter to start and, and snow to drop here. But look at the forecast for the next week. It's upper 60s to, to, to lower 70s. And in fact, ironically, I have to go to Indianapolis for a couple of days for work. Uh, next week, and it's going to be way colder there than it is here. So uh, we're very thankful for the Montana weather. No smoke. Uh, there are some wildfires apparently in Washington right now, but we're not seeing any smoke from that. So the weather's just been blissfully nice. Well, I think you have a milestone tonight. I'll just say, just for the show, 271 shows. Uh, I was just going through the podcast, um, and it is kind of fun to – just see how far we've come and, and go back in time. Um, are, are you are you able to share a milestone tonight? I yes, I am. Um, I uh, officially, as of this week, I am, have done 25 years of service in the state of Montana. So what that effectively means is that I can retire here, but that's not what's happening right now because I'm definitely uh, uh, nicely engaged in my day job. But yeah, I have officially done. 25 years of service as a public educator in the state. So I'm very excited about that number. Um, I've done a lot of wonderful things uh, in my time in Montana public education. And it's just a real pleasure to serve here in Big Sky Country. Doing time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. That well, really I'd, I'd, I'd love to talk about the, the prospects of retirement, but Wes, I think we have another agenda tonight. What 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 is this podcast all about? Well, we have been, not been here for a little while. Um, we've uh, had some, some different things intervene, but tonight we're going to talk about the tech news, and we have not had a chance to, to do that in a couple of weeks. So I carried forward uh, multiple articles from our last show, which was three weeks ago on September 21st, um, everyone can go to edtechsr.com slash links 
if you'd like to access our Google Doc and our categories, which we have a ton in the Google. So we, I think we've got like nine articles in the Google, which I'm, you know, we probably won't get to all of. Uh, we have a Microsoft article. We've got EdTech Hype, uh, AI, the Metaverse, uh, social media, the tech correction, hardware, uh, attention IT directors, security, and miscellaneous, and of course, our geeks of the week. I think I'm going to actually move our hardware uh, up to some other categories because one of those is a Microsoft article and the other one has to do with the metaverse. So where would you like to begin tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, lots of exciting things going on. Let's do a big one right now. Um, I, I learned of this uh, report today in a meeting with other leaders from the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance, but this is from Gartner, um, which I believe is a business analytics company, but this is the hype cycle for K-12 education 2022. And it is a report, and I've spent maybe only 10, 15 minutes looking through it. Um, according to this, it's a 78-minute read, which I think is actually pretty legitimate. But the um, the I, I, both Wes and I are very aware of, of, of how hyped uh, educational technology can be. Um, and, in fact, education in general is very subject to hype. Uh, as, as we, we have movements come and go and the more cynical of, of, of school teachers will tell you that the same stuff just keeps coming around over and over and over again. They just, you know, call it by different names. But this report, uh, is trying to kind of determine where certain movements are in the so-called hype cycle. And they have, uh, kind of five stages of hype. The innovation trigger. So when things are, um, uh, starting to fire up and then the peak of inflated expectations, which is the uh, height of the hype, you might say, the trough of dis disillusionment, uh, which uh, uh, there's lots of jokes I can make there. The slope of enlightenment when we kind of kind of get back to finding the, the the way, and then the plateau of productivity. In other words, when these things are um, uh, uh, becoming, you know, their the real reality after the hype is over and we've decided where things are going. And it's really interesting because, uh, there was a lot of things on here, um, that, uh, um, uh, I guess for lack of a better way of, uh, of putting it have been uh, things we've talked about, um, on the show, uh, the prospect of 5g, um, certainly immersive technology, adaptive learning, um, uh, smart campuses, uh, but, there are a lot of pieces here that I thought were interesting because they are uh, likely to, to be an increasing part of your world uh, in the coming years, including chatbots, which are just starting their innovation trigger, and then the metaverse, which I have another article I'd like to talk about tonight as well. But uh, you know, taking a look at this list, Wes, is there anything um, on the current hype cycle for K-12 education that you think is either miscategorized here or... Um, you know, is maybe getting a raw deal from uh, the uh, Gartner analysis firm. Wow. Well, my first observation is that if you're looking to come up with a title of lingo that's going to get you accepted at an upcoming ed tech conference, then here you go. Um, but you may not want to select. In, well, who knows? Yeah, you, you could probably do anything along this continuum. Yes. Oh. Well, well, and I'll give you a really good example of this. Um, you know, educational analytics is something that that right now it's it seems to be in the depths of the trough of disillusionment. But to be honest about it, I think that's a pretty realistic uh, uh, description of where 
uh, analytics are in K-12 education right now. Um, I've always thought that we undervalue data quite a bit in schools, uh, and, and especially now that we have new ways to parse that data and view that data and perhaps analyze that data, we're not necessarily taking advantage of it. But at the same time, you know, data is only as rich as the tools you have analyzing it. And also, you know, we I think there's a lot of garbage data out there just because you can measure something um, you know, uh, it doesn't mean you can measure it or I'm sorry, you should measure it or you should make decisions based off of it. But, um, you know, I've noticed in the last two or three years, um, and maybe I'll even say four or five years, cause I want to exclude the pandemic, uh, from the analysis for a second. We had an awful lot of vendors, uh, that were approaching my organization to try to sell us analysis tools for educational data. And some of the ones that were more interesting, um, they certainly had a way to analyze data, but it wasn't things that I thought brought much value to the party, right? Like, uh, for example, uh, I'm in an online learning program. Online discussions are a mainstay of many online learning programs. We actually tend to discourage them a little bit as a learning strategy because I, I think they're oftentimes overhyped and underdeliver on engagement and real learning possibilities for kids and students. But there were tools we could plug in to say, you know, when are students posting and how often are they posting? It's like, well, that's not, I mean, yes, that's, that's a tool, but who cares, right? Like that's not something that is going to provide as much insight. And I will say that some of the companies that I've seen demos on lately are becoming a lot more uh, nuanced about providing, uh, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, opportunities for folks um, to be able to, certainly uh, 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 look at data, but start to parse it to action, right? Creating automations out of that data, which I think provide, a, um, a, you know, more use for that. So, you know, this would probably, if you're in any kind of educational technology uh, program, especially at the graduate level, these are probably, <laughs> if not all, most, 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 these are things we should be familiar with. I don't even know what AV over IP was, and it says it's obsolete before plateau. <laughs> um, where are learning management systems on this? Well, I would imagine, uh, well, I mean, absent from this pro report in part because you know, they're, they're a relatively dated technology, right? We've had 25 years of LMSs, but I would say that anymore, the learning management system isn't nearly as interesting than what plugs into it, right? In fact, I've sat in on uh, several vendor demos in the last two or three years that were about things you could plug into your LMS for extensibility purposes and not necessarily the LMS itself were most interesting. Um, but also LMSs, I mean, I've I, I, I seen an increase in marketing speak around, you know, LMSs are well, our 25-year-old technologies, we need to reinvent the LMS from the ground up. Uh, that's interesting to me, too. But uh, in, in my mind, the extensibility is more important than the platform itself. The thing I'm struck by is just how much of this is not necessarily reflecting reality in different school contexts. I, I absolutely wish I could speak in complete frankness and honesty about <clears throat> the situation my wife is in, um, in public education here in North Carolina. And maybe at some time, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll be able to, but, um, you know, even from what I'm coming from in Oklahoma, um, you know, I, I don't know, I, rather than be so cryptic, I mean, everybody in her district of over a hundred thousand folks are using Canvas. 
uh, first grade up, everyone's Canvas. Um, we were not using a uh, learning management system at all, really at, at the elementary level prior to COVID um, at my previous school. And there's, there's a tendency in at least some schools of, hey, let's just go back to the way it was, not necessarily you know, embracing lessons learned, but yeah, isn't it great we didn't do that? I think a lot of people may have experienced some kind of worse practice, you know, rather than best practice during the pandemic when it came to, to some things with, with, with LMSs. So um, I know that it's got on there a learning experience platform and all these things are defined in this article. Yeah. Um, so I think this is going to be something good to go, go back to and, and take a look at. Um, I'm interested that digital credentials is so far ahead. It's like the, the third to the furthest um, along on the plateau of productivity. In fact, maybe, maybe the authors here would put LMSs on the plateau of productivity. I don't know. Um, I've dabbled with digital credentials. Um, and I know, I mean, you're just, you're like, real, you're literally at the cutting edge of so much in what you all are doing at the Digital Academy. Um, it's fascinating. But I also think it would be interesting to have a cross-section of educators, you know, in your particular context, in your state, in your, you know, whether you're, you're working with uh, online learning, um, somebody who's working face-to-face. -face, um, this is different in private and independent schools than it is in public schools. So I think it's fascinating, and there's a lot of food for thought. And it's also a great visualization um, because it just presents things in a different way that we could debate and argue about. Not only is something on there and what is that, but is it in the right place? There's just a lot of different assumptions that they've got uh, inside it. And so I think it's fascinating, um, and it would certainly be a great catalyst for some conversations, uh, you know, at your at your school, but also probably across schools and uh, institutions. Totally. And I want to mention one quick thing about digital uh, uh, credentials. And in a lot of cases, when people hear that term, what they mean is badging. And I've always had a mixed view of badging just because that it's been my experience. I'm not saying it's everyone's experience, but it's my experience that um, uh, it's a lot of hype and they don't have the magical powers that people say they do in regards to engagement. But um, I heard a, a fascinating presentation from my honored colleagues from the Georgia Virtual, Sc Virtual School um, a few weeks back when I was meeting uh, with uh, other state virtual schools in the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance, and they've been a longtime proponent of badging. They've been on the ground getting the job done, and one of the things they discovered when they implemented them with kids was that the badging alone wasn't all that useful. It doesn't mean anything unless you have a personalized learning framework underneath and a structure for students to meaningfully move their way through a curriculum. So in other words, the badges have to mean something with kids. And um, I'm not surprised by that fact, but their their groundwork there, I think, is going to be pivotal to seeing if we can't make that, you know, something um, uh, uh, that we can you know, utilize in the future. You know, I, I get told, and it, what's really interesting about distance learning is that everyone thinks they're an expert in it because they under they think they understand education. And the reality is, is that I get a lot of people suggesting things to me that you know how you can make online learning better. Uh, I don't really feel like regular education is subjected to that same, you know, everyone has an idea here, but, um, you know, I get frequently told, for example, that, you know, we just need to make education to a game. Kids are super into games, make education to a game. Well, that's been tried before. Um, there's been numerous, uh, uh, attempts to create games out of, uh, uh, out of a learning, and the reality is, is there's something to gamification, 
right? That notion of creating, well, I mean, the whole idea behind most apps uh, in, in, in 2022 is gamification theory, right? How do we add some element of, of games, gamespersonship? I don't know if we have a general neutral term for gamesmanship, but uh, gamespersonship, uh, you know, to it. And it does add a lot of, of, of entertainment and adds a lot of engagement to that, but it's not universal and the research is mixed. You know, a lot of, of, of good quality and longtime programs have tried a lot of these pieces. And in the end, it, you know, learning is more complex than it looks, right? It's also more simple than it looks because we actually know quite a bit about how students learn best. And, and that's something that, that's not all that disagreed about amongst education research experts and, and, and learning psychologists. But that's a piece of this as well. So, um, and Wes, if you, oh, please. One other thought. I don't know how many folks are in this reality, but there are, at least thousands and thousands of students and kids in situations where there's the the reality is high stakes testing. It's pedagogy is not um, there. The, the, the teacher does not have autonomy to determine pedagogy in his or her yep. classroom. Uh, the nose is to the grindstone because the test scores are all that matter. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I feel like we've seen this movie before when we were in Texas and we were, were in Oklahoma. But, man, there's there's just radically, radically different worlds when it comes to the, the educational reality that students and teachers are are facing and are in the midst of. Um, and it kind of makes me yearn a little bit for EdCamp. EdCamp has been, in my experience, one of these opportunities to really mix together with folks in very different contexts in terms of where where people are with, with, with teaching and learning. And so... Um, yeah. Wow. Yep. Totally. I'm being, I'm being a bit, a bit cryptic, probably, but that's okay. Right. <laughs> the, the realities that people are in are, are just really, really different. So, and I think you're 100% right that <clears throat> oftentimes there's bandwagons that that, that vendors or others are going to be excited about, um, and that just may or may not, you know, have a, have a great connection to the to the real world uh, where we are, you know, day to day in the trenches of teaching. So thanks for this article. Is this one that came up at, you said this was like a CTO meeting or was this at a state level meeting or? No, this was at the virtual learning leadership Alliance meetings where I got to meet with other state virtual schools. Um, and, and it was during a, a a meeting today of, of operations managers. Um, I do want to pick up one other related article for a moment, just because it, it articulates so well, one of the things I'm having problems with, uh, in regards to an ongoing technological evolution, 95 Mac reported on September 30th, although this was widely reported in the media, uh, Tim Cook, uh, said in an interview, uh, and the quotation is, I'm not sure the average person can tell you what the metaverse is. And one of the things that is so, I think true about Apple. And I really feel like it's been true about Apple for decades now that they do have their pulse on the finger of consumer technology in a way that few other technology companies do even in 2022. Right. And, um, you know, and, you know, without dogging on other companies that, that come and go in regards to that, I think that Apple in my mind is the undisputed leader in, in consumer facing technology. And, um, you know, they, they asked him, um, uh, you know, uh, what he thought about it and, and what the, um, uh, you know, what's perception is and quoting from the article, more interesting, however, Cook's comments on the metaverse as other companies, 
um, such as Meta itself, double down on the term, Cook believes the average person doesn't likely know what the metaverse is. I always think it's important for people to understand what something is, and I'm not sure the average person can tell you what the metaverse is. Cook also reiterated one of the most common thoughts, which is that virtual reality can be good, but it's not a way to live your whole life. And, of course, Apple seems to be more into augmented reality, right, which is a very different concept than virtual reality slash metaverse, right? But, you know, I know a lot of people, a lot of smart people, a lot of with it people that, you know, are starting to really put their chips in on this metaverse. And I don't want to take away from the fact that I do think it's become a huge thing. But I'm just not sure if it's going to get the universal adoptability as people suspect it will. And, you know, I, I also think the folks at, Sp- at Facebook, you know, Facebook, Facebook uh, is uh, Facebook is the name of Wes and I's new um, uh, uh, social uh, media platform. So join us at Facebook.org. But the bottom line is, is that there is a uh, are you just going to look to see if it's available? <laughs> <laughs> we we got our company name, Wes. Um, so the bottom line is, is that, yeah, and it just takes me to a, a fake page. So the bottom line is, is that I, I still think the metaverse is going to struggle a little bit with wide adoptability. One of the reasons why I think it's the case is because the barrier to entry is so high financially to get anything. And I also think it's going to struggle in education. But a- any thoughts there about the metaverse, sir? One of the articles we talked about in our last show on September 21st was Mark Zuckerberg is in trouble. He lost $70 billion last year. He lost over half of his net worth. And as of that article, um, which was in was September 20th, uh, he was worth $55.9 billion. Now, those numbers are so crazy that, you know, it, it you know, it's hard to comprehend, but I think this is absolutely a case where Tim Cook is the wiser CEO. And when you look at Apple and how they do their plays, sometimes they're, they're criticized for being early, right? Like think about Apple taking the floppy drive out, taking out the uh, CD, DVD drive from laptops and doing, doing something, moving um, uh, to USB-C or whatever. You know, they, when they're doing something like that, they really are seeing the future and, and the pulse. And that's not education. That's just, overall, you know, technology market. Um, but I think that Apple's, I would characterize it as a very measured response to the hype of the metaverse and virtual reality is a wise approach. Um, because, you know, I've seen Ready Player One. I've read the book. It's, it's exciting. It's compelling. Obviously, it has Mark Zuckerberg excited too, but he's potentially foundering his company, I mean, I don't know that Facebook is going to go under, but $70 billion over half of your net worth. And there's other reasons behind it. It's not just his bet on the metaverse, but it's a pretty big part of what they're doing. On the other hand, maybe he's going to make a bet that's going to push this whole thing forward to the point where it's, it's going to, it's going to have a, a utilization that we wouldn't have otherwise because, you know, he can make a bet like this that probably no one else on the planet can make. I don't think anybody else, maybe Elon, but not really because he's into other things. So, um, yeah, I, I think that Cook is pretty wise about this. Um, I think the metaverse has incredible power. We're about to get Minecraft at our school uh, for students, Minecraft education. Have never had that as something that 
a wide number of students. We've had, had I think, maybe one high school class each year that's done a little bit with it. You, you get in there, you get kids in there, you see what they can build, how they can collaborate, what the possibilities are. That's not the metaverse. That, that's not virtual reality, but it, it, it is a virtual world, and it is a glimpse into uh, what sort of un, almost unbounded creativity you know, can, can look like and what kids can do and create. Uh, incredibly powerful, incredibly different than, than anything else um, that I've seen experienced in educational technology. So, yeah, I think, um, let's see, there is another, if you want to kind of do segues, I've got two screens here, so I'm like all feeling fancy. Um, there was another Metaverse article. Uh, yes, MSNBC yesterday, um, October 11th. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg debuts MetaQuest Pro VR headset that will cost $1,500. Um, so I have you played with an Oculus 2, Jason? I've not I, had a chance yet. I know a lot of people that have, but I haven't had a chance yet. Yeah, I've borrowed borrowed some headsets. Um, our school, my, my last school actually owned one uh, that they had for students to be able to use, and I was able to borrow it for a while. Um, Oculus 2 sold for $400. A lot of times with the new technology, like with Apple, a lot of times it'll be sort of similar, like the price point of the laptop, the price point of the Apple Watch, you know, those things tend for the new ones to stay about the same. Sometimes they go up, but like that's a huge jump, $1,100 more than the previous. Um, and it has <clears throat> what they're saying are some mixed reality uh, technologies. But, uh, and the CEO of Microsoft joined Zuckerberg um, when they talked about bringing uh, teams into virtual reality. And that, that is one of the things that, you know, Mark, I guess, during the, the pandemic, I didn't put these articles in, but I, some of them I saw, you know, where he was asking everybody at Meta or Facebook, you know, to meet online uh, with, well, obviously meet online, but to meet in, in the metaverse when, you know, a lot of folks didn't have a headset. And, um, you know, while Zoom calls and video and what we're doing here is a much more normalized the hardware requirements to be able to be in the metaverse, you know, are considerable. So um, that, you know, again, that's a sign of the bet that meta is taking uh, potential impact within the educational technology and the education sphere, probably not huge in the near term. That would be a, I think, safe and conservative estimate. Are you going to be getting a, Fifteen hundred dollar uh, MetaQuest Pro VR headset soon. I, I mean, you know, you are a gadget guy, so I am a gadget guy, and it wouldn't be totally out of the realm possibility for me to pick up a, you know, that 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 kind of a, a toy. But I just I don't see the lure yet, and and I hear it does change when you put the thing on, right? So you know that that's a thing, but. Um, I still think that until a until a realistic version of this gets down below five hundred dollars, I think the metaverse is going to be a, a an out there thing, and and that's and and I'm also with with uh, Tim Cook there. I think that wide consumer adoption isn't really going to be a reality until um, pe more people understand it. Well, I went ahead and I don't, rather than miscellaneous, I put this one under the uh, EdTech hype just because ISTE for me has oftentimes been, you know, a place where, uh, you know, we, we hear about the, the latest and the greatest and a lot of things get hyped. I'm trying to remember who told me this. Um, 
ISTE is merging with ASCD. Had, had you heard this headline? No. Uh, yeah. So this is from Education Week on September 29th, and I'll drop the link in. Um, yes, ASCD, the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development, one of the oldest and largest K-12 professional development associations, um, is set to merge with ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. Uh, Richard Collada, who's currently... Uh, CEO of ISTE is going to lead the new larger organization if ASCD members vote to approve the plan. Uh, the merged organization yet to be named would share a governing board. And so right now, uh, ASCD and ISTE are going to maintain separate identities and brands, but they're not sure how they're going to work under the umbrella organization. So by saying they're going to maintain their own brands, that sounds like there's still an ISTE conference. I mean, when I first heard this, I was like, What? We're going to do away with the ISTE, you know, ISTE, the conference. I mean, it's so interesting if you, and, and I think we probably both know some people on boards of, of large ed tech organizations, um, you know, TCA in Texas is the one that I'm more familiar with, but also ISTE. It's incredible the amount of money that those organizations are dealing with for annual conferences. And, you know, COVID was a huge, huge hit um, for organizations like that that rely on face-to-face -face conferences. Um, but this is a real surprise, and I'm not at all in the know with sort of ISTE and ASCD board, you know, kinds of issues. But um, I thought that was pretty interesting. So any thoughts? Well, yeah. Uh, uh, wow, that's a, that's a big thing. And I'm just, you know, with kind of reading the article in the background here, it sounds like that part of the reason why this is a, a good idea um, uh, uh, is that ASCD has had uh, some uh, mixed experiences the last couple of years. There's been a bit of chaos there, some disaffected uh, folks. Um, um, the, uh, but it, philosophically, here's where I'm at with that. I mean, it, it is an acknowledgement for better or for worse, and, and I'm not sure if I have an inclination either way, that that technology uh, delivery platforms and ed tech, so you know ISTE's wheelhouse, is is an increasingly important part of the ASCD uh, 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 mission, right? Like the bottom line is, and I've been a member of the Montana ASCD organization uh, off and on for the last twenty years. Um, I've done Montana-based events. I've not, I've never been to a national conference, although I will tell you that. Uh, uh, that would uh, it'd be more likely that I be, would attend an ISTE conference if there was a heavier, heavier curriculum focus there. Um, and then I think we can speak a little bit about the conference experience here in a moment. But um, I think that's an acknowledgement uh, really under both uh, uh, organizations that from the tech side, you know, the tech is pretty worthless without a sustainable curriculum in the background. And from the curriculum side, that's going to be increasingly difficult to deliver uh, you know, good curriculum assets and a well thought out curriculum without a good technology plan to go along with it. They really are hand in hand. But one thing I'd be really leery of is that I just, I don't really want ISTE to get any bigger and uh, the conference at least to get any bigger because it's already very difficult to attend, right? Like, um, you know, uh, it, it can only be held in a couple of cities and uh, because of the size of the conference, I mean, it draws tens of thousands of people, not just the attendees, that's enough, but also usually between vendors and the people that help run the conference, we're talking about also uh, potentially 10,000 plus more people to come along with that. My understanding is that there's only a handful of cities that can even handle ISTE in the first place. 
And then ignoring that for a moment, um, uh, my understanding is that you also have to find a city that has a good technology infrastructure because you have 30,000 people running around with 19, you know, LTE devices in their backpack, right? Like these are the kind of hordes that can take down your, you know, citywide cell network, right? Wi-Fi mob. Well, exactly. And, and my understanding, if I remember correctly, I think it was the DC ISTE, if I remember hearing correctly on Twitter, that, um, that they were having cell problems because, you know, every, um, you know, every Wes and Jason were running around with their cell phone and 4G enabled tablets and they were trying to get on Wi-Fi. And there's just not a lot of people that can handle that infrastructure. And I think they were giving everyone surface books maybe at that one or what was <laughs> Yeah. When they, uh, the, the surface RTs. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I don't want to see that conference get any bigger because that poses even more challenges for people actually getting there. But boy, would I really like a curriculum-focused technology conference or a technology-focused curriculum conference because that marriage seems made in heaven. Well, I will say this. So since I've, um, you know, started off with a, with a uh, private school, independent school, I was at Cassidy for seven years. <clears throat> this is my first year at Providence Day. Um, I, I uh, was introduced to an organization called Atlas, which is the Association of Technology Leaders in Independent Schools. And there are some other organizations out there for ed tech. But, man, Atlas, to, in my view, has just done a fantastic job bringing together IT and instruction. And that really, in my mind, is is absolutely what we need. It's not the silo of, oh, let's just have tech directors go off by themselves. I remember I was actually at NECC, and this, gosh, would have been, I don't know what years this would have been, late 2000s, um, but I participated in a, in a great panel that brought together principals and IT directors, and they talked about issues, and they were, you know, sort of comparing and contrasting their different worlds. It was wonderful, and I totally agree with you. I think that we need to bring those worlds together um, and the opportunity to, to do that might be greater with a merged ASCD and ISTE. But if they're going to maintain separate brands, maybe they're going to, maybe it's going to be separate. But probably a lot of the conversations happening at ISTE, you know, we've, we've had that experience where it's like, wow, I wish my principal was here. Wow, I wish, you know, some other teachers were here, you know, and it's not something that just needed to be, you know, contained into sort of educational technology, early adapter, innovator circles. Yeah. So totally. I'll say on a personal note, I have really found that smaller conferences are the ones that I enjoy the most. And I don't know if I'll go to ISTE anymore. Uh, maybe I will. I don't have an announcement tonight, but I'm uh, working with some different folks on some potential summer things. We mentioned the Moodle Moot. In fact, I got to put that link in. There's several things that were mentioned in the last show. And yes, is this a, a weird thing? I listen to our shows sometimes again, Jason. Um but some of that is to catch show notes and things like that that I need to need to put in. But um, smaller conferences are just easier to make connections, you know. And I haven't attended the Moodle Mood in person. I can only guess. It's just it's I'm, I know it's fantastic. I mean, it was a, it was a superb online experience. I've, I've had some other experiences like that. Um, and face to face can just really be you know deeper, richer, and better uh, than what we can do online. But on the other hand, we also have this chance to interact and have transformative learning experiences with people who wouldn't be able to be in the room together at that time, you know, when we're doing online. 
Do you want to do that Vox article? I moved it up under Metaverse. We can just close out the Metaverse topic tonight, I think, because all four of those, this is your September 6th. Uh, Meta hasn't really learned the right lesson. It's been a little while since. Yes, it's been a little while since we've done this. Um, But if I recall, so this article is about uh, Francis Haugen, which was the the Facebook whistleblower from 2021, right? Um, She recently spoke uh, at the uh, Vox Media Code Conference and says that um, in the year since she engaged in her whistleblower activity report things there, that she doesn't think they've done enough to really do or to have many changes there. And there's been lots of, of um, uh, lots of, of suggestion of regulation and there have been some, uh, some slight adaptations, but she likens it to hiding the dirty laundry as opposed to actually dealing with it. And um, I, uh, there's other articles tonight that we might get into this topic as well, but the bottom line is people are leaving Facebook in droves. And you mentioned Wes that, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg himself, the CEO and founder of, of Meta, you know, lost $70 billion last year, right? Which I can't even begin to comprehend in my head um, uh, that that kind of lost. He's doing fine, though. Don't worry about him. Um, but the, the bottom line about Facebook is that I still think the same problems that plagued the platform in, in, in 2020 and the, the problems that plagued the platform in, in 2016 still exist in, in a lot of ways, shapes or form. And, and by the way, a lot of my thoughtful friends that really wanted to be meaningful about choosing the platforms they engaged in have left Facebook and probably aren't coming back. And again, I, as I've mentioned several times over, I have a very mixed view of Facebook because in part, I utilize Facebook to keep up with my friends, but there's still just an awful lot of creepiness about the platform and perhaps the the targeting of of, of people for political and other uh, issues, uh, I think, is, is still very problematic on the platform. Absolutely. All right. I'd like to jump to a, a miscellaneous one. This is a really, really huge deal, and it um, it links to media literacy. It links to uh, disinformation, weaponization, social media, uh, links a lot of things. This is uh, an article from the Associated Press actually an hour ago. So this is today. Alex Jones ordered to pay 950, oh, sorry, $965 million for Sandy Hook lies. And if you go to Google News and look for this, it, it's interesting to see the different headlines that different news organizations are having for this. <clears throat> I don't know what your intersection with Alex Jones has been. I, uh, for a while, had a mailbox in, um, and I probably need to get something like this too. Like when you have domains that you own, you have to put an address there unless you pay extra to keep it private, which I haven't really wanted to do. So I've paid for a little mailbox. Anyway, the one of the places that I had a mailbox had this guy who who literally listened to uh, Alex Jones as well as, as Rush Limbaugh, but just all day long, every time I'll go in there, I was like, what is that? That is just so vitriolic and 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 hateful and just, oh my gosh. Well, one of the things that Alex Jones is sort of most famous for is contending that no kids were ever shot at Sandy Hook, that it was crisis actors, that it was all fake. Uh, It's a big conspiracy theory. And so this is the second big judgment that has been handed down by a judge for spreading that myth, that lie, that the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history never happened. It did. It, it happened. People were killed. And so um, I've been listening to some different podcasts. Um, 
that have talked about this and some really compelling ones from parents who have felt like, you know, they just, they just had to speak out. Uh, and so I think that this is an important victory for truth. Um, you know, I'm, it's interesting, the litigious society that we live in. I have friends who are lawyers. I think that, I mean, it's so important that we have a vibrant legal system and a judiciary to serve as a check in, in all kinds of ways in our society. <clears throat> but when it comes to this specific lie about Sandy Hook, you know, I would hope we wouldn't have to have a court ruling in order to try and set the record straight. But I'm glad that we have courts that can try and set the record straight like this. Um, and, um, you know, we've we've got a lot of folks who are really into their conspiracy theories. And I started that conspiracy theory unit with my, in this case, six, uh, sixth, seventh, eighth grade students today. Uh, important conversation. So anyway, I think that relates to a lot of the, what we've talked about with tech correction and the ways in which social media platforms can you know, create um, filter bubbles and, you know, there, there can be some, some pretty uh, false and, and negative and hurtful narratives that can really be advanced by different platforms. And, and so I, I see this as a positive. This is obviously an issue that touches on a lot of politics. And so we're not a political show. We don't just, you know, talk straight politics. Uh, but this is one that undoubtedly has huge um Huge, huge implications in, in terms of the ways that it intersects with technology. And we had, you know, Apple banning Jones at one point from from uh, iTunes, from podcasts. And, and I think YouTube, you know, kicked him off the, the platform <clears throat> in the course of not this article, but hearing about it. They were saying every time he had a show, he was making $40,000 uh, in product sales. And that there were there's some things that have been uncovered with the different lawyers and and folks that have been involved. So anyway, I could comment more, but I'll just say. I, I view it as a positive. And if you don't want to comment on it, that's totally good. <laughs> no, I'm totally fine. I, what I would say to that is that, I mean, the bottom line is, is that there is a, a the debate going on right now about Mr. Musk and Twitter, right? Since Elon might be buying Twitter again. And there is some, um, uh, there, there is an article about that in tonight's, uh, tonight's view. We may get to, we may not get to it, but the bottom line is, is that, you know, uh, Mr. Musk likes to talk about being a First Amendment absolutist, but there are restrictions to free speech in the United States, right? Like we have free speech um, and, and more free speech than most other even even Western style democracies, right? America tends to be a, a, a little more um, a, a, a little more proactive in, in protecting those rights than other countries, but that's not an unlimited right. And in fact, the Supreme Court uh, has put many restrictions on free speech over the past uh, 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 two centuries. Um, you know, the most famous one, of course, is the the metaphor of yelling fire in a, or in a theater, a crowded theater, when there's no fire, right? The danger that creates, you can't, you know, create speech that creates danger. But in a lot of ways, that's uh, what the accusation against Mr. Jones was, right? That he was uh, creating a hateful situation for the um, parents of, of kids that, that perished in an unbelievable tragedy and, you know, were subject to death threats and bullying. And the courts decided that nearly a billion dollars was the appropriate compensation, uh, you know, for those parents that's, that were subjected to that, that, that terrible, terrible activity. And so, 
Um, you know, I, I do feel like that free speech has 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 uh, exploded in the Internet era. Um, you know, I, I've made this this comment a couple of times on this podcast in the way that the Dr. Fryer and I believe that Internet technology can be an extraordinary way to help kids tell their stories and help share their lives and connect with one another. Those technologies also provide platforms for people that have agendas that are less than savory uh, to, to share them with a worldwide audience. And if you go, if you start, you know, sniffing around uh, Alex Jones's uh, uh, history in the last uh, 20 years, you know, he's been booted off a lot of platforms. A lot of companies stopped working with him because of this. And now there's a, a, a judgment in a court. And that's on top of a 400 and something million dollar judgment. I'm sorry, billion dollar judgment. No, million dollar judgment in Texas. You know, so this you know, today was Connecticut. The other one yeah, was Texas. I think. Yes, exactly. And that, you know, that's something I think to keep in mind as well. Right. You do not have absolute free speech rights. There's no one argues that in in in, in modern modern jurisprudence. OK, I did find it. Um, well, I'm kind of dominating the, the next article here. So we've got what are we looking at? Oh, my gosh, we're. Three quarters of the way through the show. Shout out to my dad, who is with us tonight. Thank you for joining us, dad. He wishes us both the best, Jason. And uh, I think it's just pretty cool. My, I, I got to go home yes. uh, last week with with uh, one of our children, and it was great to be in Manhattan. So good to good to have you with us. Um, I want to do a, a, a couple of election ones, but take take us to some, what do we call the, the hardcore IT ones? You're usually bringing us back into the Google, the Chrome OS, yeah, uh, yeah, we, we got a little false off. Bit of, uh, you know, pure deck here. Uh, sure. Well, here's one that I can't even begin to, to, to really truly understand why, but there was an interesting article in VentureBeat that says that web apps are the one or one of this year's leading attack vectors. And, um, this is again from VentureBeat on, um, uh, the date escapes me October 7th. And this headline, um, uh, uh, really piqued my interest because one of the reasons why I like web-based apps is because I feel like they are ever most slightly more secure than desktop apps, right? Because you're, you're on the web. But according, um, to a, a recent report, um, that involves data from Kaspersky, uh, that the, uh, attacks that start with web apps increased from 31% in 2020 to 53% in 2021. And a lot of this has to do with um, uh, uh, hacking people as they're logging in, uh, identifying internet in intrusion apps, ones that get in the middle of you or so-called ban in the middle attacks to get between you and authentication systems or servers, but they're starting to increase. And the reason why I mention this is because, you know, that would mean that Chromebooks, which have historically been considered to be very secure because they're so locked down, um, could, uh, you know, that that would impact Chromebooks as much as they would any other architecture. And not that we need anything more to worry about. Cybersecurity is the new black in schools, right? Like that's the, the bottom line in 2022 is that if you're not thinking about actively thinking about cybersecurity in your district, I will assure you that you will be sometime soon, hopefully because, because of your planning and not because of, of a response. To hopefully in a proactive 
active conversation, not a yeah. reactive one. Yeah, totally. That's exactly the, 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 the right way to put it. But um, I just thought it was interesting that that seems to be an increasing place to go. And I would imagine that part of the reason why that's the case is because I think a lot of, of corporate and even end users are hardening their systems in a way that make it um, a, a little more um, – uh, a, a little safer, you know, but the, the web is the web, right? And the bottom line is, is that one of the reasons why, um, you know, a, a, a lot of people go to the web is because that's where productivity largely lies in 2022. I put in a new topic um, and I did find the article that I was looking for. The, I put, the, the topic is elections. Uh, our midterms are what, five, six weeks away, not, not very far away here in the United States. Three. Um, is, it, is that right? Yeah, three and a half. All right, four okay, from yesterday. Catch up, Wes. Uh, so <clears throat> this is NPR from October 9th. Election officials worry about the potential for poll worker problems in November. Um, uh, they're just saying overall across the board, um, you know, poll workers faced quite a bit of not just scrutiny, but in some cases, you know, outright harassment and uh, reminds me a little bit of the, the Alex Jones situation where, you know, people were being uh, called out and, and some just really crazy things happened, especially in some of the battleground states. And then this is the article I think I heard today when I was uh, I listened to sometimes NPR one as I'm coming home. And really, is it going to oh, I'm trying to get my email? Uh, this is from nextgov.com today. Um, malicious emails surge for election workers in two battleground states, particularly ahead of primaries. Um, so like we're all potential victims of social engineering and phishing attacks. When someone is trying to get you to click a link to give your credentials away to be able to have access to your accounts. Well, in some cases, and this is talking about election workers in Arizona and Pennsylvania, uh, these phishing that's phishing with a PH schemes are, are trying to get access to the credentials that groups are using to get into their um, election systems. Um, and so it was saying, you know, ahead of Arizona's August 2nd primary, um, the number of detected phishing scams tripled from 617 to 2,246. Um, and then anyway, there's some other statistics. But um, if, if we are not talking about security and talking about, and I'm not just talking about IT department and your, your liability insurance, et cetera. I might've mentioned that uh, a school I know is now required by their insurer to make sure that every adult who is in the organization is using two-factor authentication to authenticate. That's required for, for insurance purposes. That's a, that was something new that I hadn't heard of before. Uh, but we need to be having those conversations with all of the folks that we're working with that are in our families, et cetera, using those password managers, using in unique complex passwords, all that good stuff. And those kinds of things are uh, going to be in the limelight as I'm, I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen more articles relating to the election. So we'll just have to wait and see, but now that we're three and a half weeks out, probably, you know, I don't know this where we, we definitely have folks who are reacting to this. The platforms have reacted to this disinformation and misinformation and obviously, um, you know, election officials and all kinds of folks are, are more savvy to this. But um, anyway, I'm, I'll be on the lookout in the next couple of weeks for even more election articles. I didn't put a lot in there, but those were a couple that I had seen. 
Well, I will say um, I'm not going to be in the country when the election happens. Uh, I something I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you previously, uh, Wes, but uh, my wife and I are going to take our first international trip uh, since the pandemic started. It's not all that international. We're just going to Quebec, um, but it's pretty internationally for for comparison to you know the last time we we uh, were meaningfully able to get out of the country was. Uh, four years ago. So we're excited to be able to, to start doing a little travel again. Although thank goodness for N95 masks, but, um, the, we're going to, we'll spend election night in Canada. We will be, I imagine watching the TV very closely. And then, um, as I think Dr. Fryer knows, I tend to share a lot of snarky commentary on Facebook on election nights about how terrible the media coverage is. But I will also note that I think this year is a, an important year. Um, obviously a midterm election, especially in our highly polarized, uh, political system in the United States is certainly something that, that will be newsworthy. But I think both the results of the election and how they're treated and also, um, the perception of validity in regards to hacks and, and other IT issues, I think is, is going to be front and center. So I wait with my box of popcorn to see what's going to happen next. So I've actually put in my request this week for my absentee ballot, even though I could vote in person uh, as a as a classroom teacher. Uh, you know, some and you don't ever know what the lines and things like that. This is our first time to vote in North Carolina, but I'm looking forward to being able to to cast my ballot absentee, which I really I don't know. I've, I've done that a couple times, I guess, but I'm also looking forward to that and just how it's going to afford me the opportunity to do Google searches and things like that for my ballot, which I. I've, Typically, I always found myself in Oklahoma, like for local judges and stuff, like, I have no idea. Do you just vote party? I, I don't know these people at all. So anyway, hopefully that's going to help me as a as a voter make informed decisions. Yep. Wow. Totally. There's still some pretty great articles in here that um, I don't think we're going to be able to all get to because we've got about uh, seven more minutes left. So you put most of these that are remaining in that look great. So do you want to talk Surface? Do you want to talk Twitter? Do you want to talk... Google AI editing tricks. There's some really good ones still in here. Actually, yeah. Let, let me let me cover the two Microsoft articles because um, they're related, even though they're they're a month apart. Uh, the first one is from September 14th, and Verge says the Verge says that Microsoft was right all along. More companies are embracing the form factor that the Surface Pro is famous for. And um, I will admit, I did I did have a surface one. And in fact, I still have it because I was not able. Um, I try when I can pull it off to sell my electronics used after they're no longer usable to me, but I wasn't able to get even enough price to justify the postage. This is a, a surface one pro. It's not the RT version that was given away at ISD several years back, but this is the actual pro edition. And I bought it um, new, but I bought it, you know, a year or so after it was released. So that's, that, that was the prime spot for me. And I really liked the form factor, but the keyboard was never that good to me, right? It wasn't good enough for me to go, go all in on the platform. And I've put Linux on this. I've put Chrome OS Flex on it. I've put, uh, various versions of Windows on it. It actually works quite well with Windows 10. It's, it's a decent piece of hardware, but I, the keyboard was, was always a, a, a big mix up for me. And I've used a Surface Pro 4, I think it was briefly. I had a friend let me borrow his for a couple of weeks just to get a sense of the platform. And I thought that was pretty good. Um, and then for a while I had used a Surface Book, the first generation Surface Book at work. Um, and I like the form factor. I just always thought that the Surface Pro seemed like such a fragile, 
item for schools, and yet schools were a huge market for Microsoft in regards to its piece. And Verge basically says that, as it turns out, Microsoft was ahead of its time, which uh, isn't usually something that people accuse Microsoft of. But in this particular case, it's uh, I think they're they're right that a lot of people have figured out ways about how detachables have become, you know, part of, of, of the business. Um, and then I just want to relate that to the announcements today. Microsoft announced all new hardware today, and it's really just the next generation of all their products, but it included a Surface Laptop 5. Um, the Surface Laptop is the uh, kind of answer to uh, maybe Dell's XPS 13, right? Some of the thinner Lenovo lo- models, which are, 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 are pretty popular. Uh, so it's nice to see them update that to the, to the next generation. Um, that's the laptop that had kind of that felty feel to it. Um, on the, the keyboard chassis, uh, it had a kind of a nice, pleasant, soft feel to it that my understanding actually stood pretty well to the test of time. Um, the Surface Pro 9 tablet, which has turned into a very uh, thin and, and, and light experience, um, which I think is, is pretty interesting. Uh, they also have a, a Qualcomm ARM model with something called uh, the SQ3 chip, uh, which has things like 5G support on it. Uh, and the Surface Pro 9 has a 13-inch a three by two aspect ratio screen with 120 uh, hertz refresh rate. That's a really high end piece of hardware that we're talking about there. So that's that's pretty exciting and pretty interesting. Um, and then they're also uh, uh, announcing the Surface Studio 2 Plus, which is their massive all-in-one that uh, has a kind of, I don't know how to describe it. I would maybe call it a pullable display, right? This huge display that you can pull towards you for an immersive experience. It's almost a tablet-like experience because you can utilize uh, a pen and they had tools you can attach to it that I think are, are pretty interesting. And I, it's not really my kind of hardware, um, in part because I prefer the Chrome operating system and the Mac OS system, but the people that love their surfaces, holy dog, do they love their surfaces. Absolutely. More power to them. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. Well, I think we may want to, to geek of the week it. Well, Wes... I really, 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 really want to hear more about your experience installing OpenCore on your legacy iMac. Okay. Well, uh, I mentioned that I was able to get uh, six of our past seven shows published on Monday. <clears throat> and this is one of those stories. I have an old iMac, 27-inch. Uh, actually was able to buy this as my school was getting rid of it. Uh, I thought it was a pretty good purchase for like 300 bucks. Uh, nice monitor. It's not a, you know, retina, you know, super, super fancy, but it says like, I think an i5 processor and especially with an external USB uh, drive, it's been pretty speedy and it's been the, the, the platform I've used for our show for a couple of years. So I <clears throat> regret the fact that I was not able to upgrade it. Um, like what was I, what not on Capitan? What was I on? Um, Anyway, it was several generations back. I couldn't I couldn't upgrade to Big Sur or to uh, Monterey. And so anyway, one of the things that you can do with those newer operating systems and with just newer hardware for Apple is called Sidecar. 
And that's what I'm experiencing right here. I actually have three different devices connected today. My iPhone 14 is my camera. I've got my uh, Mac M1. It's actually my wife's because uh, I don't have admin credentials on my school laptop. So I can't install special software. So I'm using her uh, MacBook Air. And then I'm able to use this lovely 27-inch screen um, as a uh, main main screen. And so it's all because Jason on the show shared this open core legacy patcher, which basically you know, reset some of the core firmware and, and, and software that's underneath the operating system that ties into hardware, and it allows for the installation of the newer operating system. So my number one problem was I was booting to this external USB drive, and this really pushes my geek quotient big time because when you are doing this, you're, you're creating temporary additional par EFI partitions on your drive in order to be able to do this kind of uh, update. And so anyway, I never was able to get that external USB drive to, to work. And I think I'm going to have to use terminal commands. And I don't know. I'm, I don't know. People at school certainly don't have to help me with this. I may end up, I don't know if I'm going to even mess with it. I may have to just format that, that, uh, drive again and see if I can utilize it because it really makes this a lot faster. But bottom line with the built-in terabit hard drive that I've got here, uh, I'm running um, our, uh, our, our, our latest, well, it's, yeah, I think I'm running, I'm not running the, the beta of the new OS it's about, but I'm, so I, am I not running Monterey? Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm running, I, I think it's the generation before Monterey, but I'm doing sidecar and I'm absolutely thrilled to do it. And if you noticed, if you're watching the show, which you may be listening, but, you know, I'm looking over here on the side because I've got multiple screens. And so now I'm probably going to, you know, get one of the things to sort of mount the laptop and, and bring it a little bit closer and more vertical. But absolutely thrilled to get that additional mileage during the pandemic. You know, I, I yearn for this capability uh, we've talked about on the show. You've mentioned several times, Jason, the research that's behind multiple screens or sorry, you know, multiple monitors and how productivity can really go up when, when you have multiple screens. And this is a perfect example because I like to have the chat open. I like to be able to make sure I'm in this, the, the viewfinder here, the video is working. And then I've got, you know, my articles over here. So that's my story. And I probably will, will post uh, on the blog about it. And then I've got two other geeks of the week uh, real quick. Um, one of them is the Baofeng UV5R. Do you know about this, Jason? $22 radio from, from China? No. <laughs> so I am the, the new owner of a $22 ham radio that is battery operated. And right now I'm just listening to NOAA weather radio because I don't have my ham license. But at the end of the month, I'm going to be taking my technician's license to be a ham radio operator. Uh, I went to my first meeting of a local Charlotte uh, amateur radio group. My, my grandfather on my mom's side was a ham um, I'm kind of getting into emergency preparedness. I'm a Boy Scout. I've been into emergency preparedness kind of for my whole life, but I think it's really important to do. And one of the things that can happen in an emergency uh, is that you can have, you know, communication issues. Uh, power can go out. Cell phone towers will not work forever on battery. And so um, anyway, for 22 bucks, I'm going to do more research about it. But somebody was saying, I think the Chinese owner who or creator that's like a billionaire, like won a Nobel Prize or something like it's pretty amazing. But for 22 bucks and because of these technologies called repeaters, which are in your local area, you don't have to have this massive antenna in order to do a lot of stuff with ham radio. So anyway, that is a 22-hour radio, and you do not need a license in order to listen. It's just to broadcast. And so uh, being able to listen to your local, you know, uh, 
National Weather Service, as well as potentially emergency uh, groups and things like that. I'm, I'm, I'm learning about that. But then the last link I put in is from FEMA's website, ready.org. Just build an emergency kit. Um, I'm, I'm not a hardcore prepper, all right? I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat tonight. But look, emergencies happen, right? Hurricane Ian, I'm, I'm thankful not to live in Florida. We had school canceled because of Ian. It only dropped about an inch of rain here. We were forecast to maybe get four to seven inches. Um, it hit the Charleston coast, I think, at like a, a category one. So Hugo was in 89, was a category five when it hit. And it did create devastating uh, loss of power for over a week and stuff like that here in the Charlotte area and did much worse damage on the coast. Jason's in Montana. There's a different set of circumstances and situations there, but it pays to be uh, ready. And uh, what did, there was a great quote today from, from one of the um, IT guys at work. It was like, you don't need to be read. You don't need to get ready when you you're always ready or something. I don't know. That's so good that, advice, uh, as it turns out. That's, that's there you go. And, so. and I'll just tell you, Jason, there is a possibility uh, that at some point the EdTech Situation Room may not only be going out over the internet waves, but it's possible to go uh, over the ham radio waves. <laughs> and I I think that might be a goal of mine. Uh, not that we're you know we've got a cast of thousands of viewers that are tuning in on the internet. I can't imagine the horde of people that will be there on the ham radio waves to listen to us, but who knows? Well, as first, just shout out to you. I always delight when I can share a nerdy tech tip with you that you then run with. So I, that, that is delightful to me in, in, in no uncertain terms, but I have another nerdy thing I'm going to share tonight and there's a link to it and our show notes for this week. But, um, one of the things that is a challenge slash delight about USB-C is that unlike other charger styles, the amount of voltage and watts that go through the cable matters quite a bit. And the prospect of how much uh, energy you can push through to charge your devices is actually quite large with the USB-C standard. But the problem is, is that the cables aren't made uh, alike. The chargers aren't made alike. And if you've got, you know, 10 chargers from 10 different manufacturers with 10 different sizes, those could either be super fast chargers or super slow chargers. So enter in the pluggable USB-C power meter tester for modern USB-C connections available from Amazon.com for 25 bucks. Here it is. Um, this, it, it's a little device that's got a USB, uh, USB-C, uh, input on one end and, and in the other. And I'm, I've got a plugged in USB-C cable here that I'm going to plug in. And I'm going to take a device, um, here. This is a, uh, a mobile hotspot, uh, from Verizon. I'm going to plug it in and it's going to tell me that this is currently charging at six watts. Um, which is much lower than what this should be charging at. Um, uh, and, and through process of elimination, I can, you know, figure out, is this the cable or is this the charger or is this the device? But I found this enormously useful once I find a cable that I trust and a charger that I trust is I can oftentimes find out how fast a device charges based off of that. And also, if one charger doesn't seem to be charging very fast, I can get actual data that that does quite a bit to help me out with you know, how fast is something charging? So uh, it's a $25 investment. It's probably high-end nerd. And, you know, I'm sure that maybe I'm one of very few people that sits at home thinking, how fast are my USB-C cables and chargers charging my device? But if you are that person, I am pleased to tell you that there is a device that allows you 
um, uh, to get that information. So 25 bucks from Amazon and nerdy worth it. And on an educational technology note, uh, we're doing Lego robotics with the Lego spike prime kits in my classes. And that brain has a, has a uh, micro USB charger that charges to USB a, but I was just looking today cause I've, we, we have this issue with different chargers and plugging it in and is this enough? Um, so I, 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 uh, I need this and, uh, yeah, it just a lot of us are in cable and dongle HE double hockey sticks because there's just so many different charges and attachments. And I think that the two hundred dollar um or I don't know if it was that much, but anyway, it was an expensive set of uh of, of wireless earbuds that I got. I think I charged it with the wrong cable and I, I can't charge it anymore. So maybe this would have would have saved me. But this is an issue I'm actually working out because of these different devices. And, oh, isn't it great? It all plugs in the same. Well, all those plugs aren't created equal, so this could really help. Okay, well, I think we need to get out of here. We've gone eight minutes over. Yeah, I, we could probably, uh, maybe the, the our next new podcast coming soon to a podcast aggregator near you. Wes and Jason talk nerd for an hour about undisclosed <laughs> topics. But, um, Wes, where can people find you on the Internet, sir? W Fryer on Twitter. You can go to westfryer.com slash after, and there's a plethora of links there that you can follow me with my cooking exploits as well as other places on the interwebs. How about you? Hey, find me on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. But this here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast that broadcasts on Wednesday nights. Um, yes, we have to take a week off occasionally here or there, but I promise it's for a good reason. You can join us live on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, or sometime in the middle of the night UTC. We broadcast over YouTube. We broadcast over Facebook. Links are at our Twitter account, EdTechSR, or after the fact, Sometime a week, maybe a little more afterwards, you can always find the podcast wherever find, find our podcasts are aggregated or go on our website at techsr.com. you also find our show notes there. We hope you can join us live. If you can't, please check us out afterwards. Stay safe. Stay savvy. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we hope to see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night, everybody.